and she's like, you're fine, but I can see why your sister would say that. And I'm like, I'll just put it out. Yeah. I'm sorry. That is hilarious. <laughs> well, this welcome everyone to the full cup. This is my sister, Rachel, the annoying gum, gum chewer. chewer. Yes, I am. <laughs> and I will own it. It takes skill. I know you're, you're really good at popping that gum. Okay, so Craig is not with us today. He is currently working, I assume. And I called Rachel because she works in my dad's office as a therapist. And I feel like the current epidemic that everyone on this earth has is anxiety. As adults, I think lots of adults wake up in the middle of the night and have to go to the emergency room and they are having their first panic attack they've ever had. And I know like three people that has happened to within the last couple of years. And then I also have my daughter, everyone's daughter or kid. I mean, whether it's in elementary school or at scout camp or going out on a mission, everyone is struggling with anxiety. My daughter in particular, she's only nine, but there are just different things that have happened that I'm like, I don't know what's wrong. Maybe this is anxiety. And as I talk to you, you think, yes, it is. is. (laughs) (laughs) Not to label that, but yeah. Okay. So Rachel is a little bit experienced in the anxiety uh, field as in personal experience and people around her. Yes. Helping people. So tell me a little bit about yourself just and your experience what's your experience with anxiety so i would say that i have struggled with anxiety since i can remember being alive back okay. to i would say i have memories of being 4 years old really? of having feelings that i didn't recognize yeah what they were at the time but debilitating fear is what I would call it now. I'm not sure why I can actually remember the very first time I felt it. This is going to sound really funny. I was in bed. I wasn't old enough to be in school yet. So I could have been four or five. And I can remember thinking, what if someone wanted me to eat a grape Slurpee and I didn't want to, (laughs) and I was breathing really, I remember running upstairs to my mom and telling her I was sick, trying to explain. I don't know why. And this thought kept coming into my head because I don't know why I was hooked on a grape Slurpee. Yeah. Um, so something that I experienced, you still, you still experience. Yes. So started at an early age. It's, I love talking about anxiety. It's something I could talk for days about, but when I first start talking with people, I think they're not really happy about what I have to say, because now at my age, I would tell you, I love my anxiety. Absolutely love it. It has done wonders for me. And most people that I meet that have it, hate it. Right. And so reconciling that between the way I view it and the way other people view it. So to say that I'm like recovered, do I experience anxiety like I I used to? No. Is it still a part of my life? 100%. It's just directed differently. That's interesting. But makes sense. It sounds like you use it for good. Yes. Okay. So where is this anxiety coming from? Where when kids wake up in the night and have this fear, why are they having this happen? That's like the million dollar question, right? And another answer that most people don't like to hear would be is it just depends. All of our experiences, we all are created from four frameworks. We have biological aspects, psychological, sociological, and spiritual that create who we are. And you can have experiences in any one of those areas that can create 
anxiety. And so it's not, it's, it's not a one fits all. Now, symptoms are similar across the board. I mean, there are variations between some people, but there are pretty common symptoms that we can all identify. Those are connected with anxiety, but why you have them is not as easy to pinpoint because are there biological factors? You bet. 100%. Psychological factors? Yes. In myself, as a child, as an adult now, I can see the effects of my biology, my psychology, my sociology, and my spirituality, and how all of those influence my anxiety. Okay, so those are big words. So give me okay. an example. So biology, meaning your genetics, because I also have had anxiety, especially as a little kid, those same crazy thoughts. I'm not gonna be able to fall asleep. What happens if I don't fall asleep? If I fall asleep, I'm gonna be late for school. What happens if I'm late for school? If I'm late for school, I'm gonna miss, I'm gonna fail school and I'm in first grade. Good, fail school, who cares? <laughs> but Which would unable be the to sleep. easy answer, right? And then, who cares? Yes, and then crying every day before school, me in my childhood, probably until seventh grade. It just was something I was afraid of. Can I tell you, I remember that. And for those of you guys that don't know Libby personally, but I can remember my mom bribing Libby to go to school <laughs> and in kindergarten, her, her getting to wear big girl fingernails to kindergarten because it meant she would go to school. <laughs> I know. And they all fell off so Isn't fast. That sweet? I remember singing every day on the way to school. We would sing, you are my sunshine on repeat. If you sing, you do, you're happy. Well, just keep singing and tears are just streaming down my <laughs> face while I'm, yeah, I'm happy. Okay. Oh, yeah, I'll go. okay. And then you start to hate the song, you're my sunshine. Cause it's connected to, right. wait a minute. No, this was to you. try to this help me not school. feel sad. Genetics. Okay. So yeah. So biology is just biological factors, the way your DNA, the way you're created. I mean, that, that's research-based, right? Uh -huh. there, are, there are genetic components to that, and okay. it can be hereditary. As I've seen, I mean, many people in our family, I have right. daughters that struggle with it as well. Psychologically, I would tell you the way I perceived things, the way I felt. I'm an oldest daughter, mm -hmm. and therefore, not always, but have the tendency to want to please. I think mm -hmm. that came with me as well. And that part of me influenced my anxiety, becoming a pleaser. Conditioning. Conditioning is a big part in all of these frameworks as well. Environment, right? Sociology is your environment and how that can influence things that happen, you know, when you're at school, when you're at home, that can influence anxiety mm -hmm. as well. Spirituality. And when I say spirituality, I'm not talking religion. I'm talking spirituality. Some people think they're the same. Spirituality is the way I connected to higher power, the way I viewed my spiritual self. For instance, at a young age, and and I don't think I was taught this. I know I wasn't taught this because I spent a lot of time thinking about it. I feared God. I wasn't taught to fear God, at least in my home, I wasn't taught to fear God. But my acceptance of who he was and my relationship with him because of how I fired was one of fear. Mm -hmm. that? And when oh, I say yeah. fire, that means how I burn. I tend to burn hot. I don't sleep in. I never have. To me, that's a biological connection to my anxiety, mm -hmm. right? I don't stay up late because if I do, I won't fall asleep. I tend to just have a lot of energy and I always have. And trying to channel that, I think, has influenced my anxiety as well. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So the four frameworks make up different reasons as to why we can have it. Those create who we are. Those four frameworks 
are essentially who all of us are, right? And we all have different experiences within those frameworks. And when one gets much bigger than the other, it can throw the other ones off. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So then we know what it is and where it can come from. And so what's the magic potion? Well, well, let me ask you, when you say we know what it is, I don't know that everybody does know what it is. Yeah. Because you said, you know, people are sh- ending up in the emergency room saying right. I'm having they're having a heart, a heart attack. attack. Yeah. Right. And so it, it does not always manifest the same for every person. But generally, anxiety is connected to repetitive thoughts that seem to spin and grow bigger, kind of like the idea of jump into a swimming pool and have a fear of drowning and you're fighting and fighting to swim, which is this repetitive thought that keeps growing and growing when if you could just learn to float, Mm -hmm. just relax and float. But anxiety tends to be marked fear that is greater than what fits for the setting, meaning your response is greater than what the fear calls for. Okay. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah. Like you saying, and I don't, and, and what if I can't fall asleep? And then if I don't fall, you know, right. when, making a bigger deal out of something than needs to be. Yeah, okay. exactly. It can affect breathing. It can affect your ability to eat, ability to sleep, ability to bring your thoughts outside of your internal feelings. You tend to have your feelings stuck on what's feeling on the inside and have a hard time pulling them out on what's around you on the outside like a hard time talking about it? No, being mindful, being aware of what's going on around you. That's why mindfulness is a great kind of. Yes, that's um, like a new word that is very popular. (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of the magic word right now, isn't it? And it is very powerful. Intentional. Anyways, just wanted to clarify, anxiety is just an overreactive response to something that feels uncontrollable and unmanageable. Okay. So then how do we work to manage that feeling? What are some tools or steps? Okay. I mean, is that where you would go next or what else? Yeah. Well, let me, let me back up and say that there is something that anxiety creates within you that a lot of people, if you haven't experienced, you don't understand. Right. And your response is get over it. Right. Well, you don't understand. (laughs) Well, so I want to address that real quickly because I just posted a thing on our Facebook page with Bob Newhart in the therapy on was it Saturday Night Live where he's like, just stop it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did see that. Yes. Um, And that's on the Bountiful Health Center Facebook page if you want to watch it. Yeah. And I remember people saying that to me as a kid. Just stop it. Mm hmm. And I thought, well, good grief. Don't you think I would stop it if I knew how to stop it? Right. Or if Um, I could. Yes. And because of that, I was well aware that I did respond differently to things, that I had a heightened response. My response, I would look around and think, well, my brother's not acting that way about having to go to school. And my mom's not acting that way about having to go to the store. But I am. Mm -hmm. And because of that, it made me wobbly. I mean, it made me really insecure at my response to where I felt like I could no longer trust my own emotions. And because of that, that kind of creates this this wobbly sense of self because everyone, we're all given these emotions and we think the response feels real, but my responses felt real, but they weren't. Yeah. And that can be a scary place to exist at any age. And people don't give you credit for how you're feeling. Right. That's 
Just stop yeah, it. Like You're fine. That's too bizarre. How could you even be feeling yeah. like that? You just must be hungry. You need a nap yes. <laughs> or something. Or some Pepto-Bismol. Right. That was kind of the fix-all <laughs> in my day. And so the reason why I wanted to point that out is because every kid, and I'm talking specifically about children right now, This, but this goes across the board. Everyone wants to feel normal mm-hmm. or what would you, you would consider typical. Anxiety kind of pulls that from you. You're aware that your response does not make you typical or normal. And that's a hard place to be. So starting out with that, the first thing I tell anyone when I talk to them, whether it's them or their children dealing with it, is finding a way to normalize it, to deflate the power that it has. So I'll give you an example. My daughter, I have a daughter that has struggled with anxiety as well. And when she was young funny that you say that her fear was that she couldn't fall asleep. Mm-hmm. And then she would be awake while the rest of us were asleep. And that was scary. And she knows she was supposed to be to sleep. And what if she doesn't fall asleep? And she's, and she hears in school that she's supposed to get so many hours of sleep. And if she doesn't, then something's wrong. And what's going to happen to mm-hmm. her? And, and it would perpetuate almost to this fear of like, she might die yeah. because she's not going to get enough sleep. And so what we did was said, okay, don't sleep fine. Tell you what we'll do. We're going to take all the clock. We took her clock out of her bedroom. So she never knew what time it was. We closed her blinds and we kept her light on in her room. So when it was time to go to bed, if she couldn't sleep, there was not this fear of what's wrong with me. I can't sleep. It was like, here is, so we got her booklet and said she wanted to be a veterinarian. I want you to get up and I want you to draw the the greatest veterinary clinic. I want to know what you name it. I want to know what, what color you're, your jacket would be, what animals you would, you know, work on, what the colors, how you would decorate it. And if, if you can't sleep great, you can sleep later. Yeah. And the minute we started doing that, the power that the, that was behind the what if deflated Mm -hmm. because we tried to normalize it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it really makes sense. I'm just thinking like about my daughter and for example, Mm -hmm. when I worked at primary, I worked at primary children's, uh, residential treatment center on their psych unit and it's all about behavior modification it's like positive and negative stimulus Mm -hmm. positive and negative reinforcement don't give a reaction to this do give a reaction to this to try and regulate their behavior Mm -hmm. like it's kind of like the rat in the cage deal with a human being Mm -hmm. and so with my daughter when is this weird I keep talking about my daughter sorry everyone oh well (laughs) if she were to be freaking out about something that is ridiculous. I am just done. I'm ignoring you. I'm not giving you any attention for this negative behavior, blah, 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 blah. When the polar opposite is, okay, well, I I mean, I can't think of a specific example. Let's see. Okay, just school. Okay, that's happened before, not wanting to go to school. And I'm just like, you need to go in your room and get dressed. And if you're going to freak out, then I'm done. Go get ready when you're ready. I'll see you later. And instead, maybe what I should be doing is saying, oh, you're really worried about school? Okay, well, what's going to happen at school today? What's wrong with that? Oh, that would be scary. You know, making her feel more comfortable instead of just cutting her off. Yeah, definitely. There's also an aspect to it of not being heard. 
because it is catastrophic. The responses, and even though I've experienced them myself as an individual, I am raising children that experience them. And so I know and see how frustrating it is and, and to hear something that feels so illogical. But going back to our behaviors are motivated by our needs, there is something the anxious thought, the catastrophicness is doing for her. It's not a conscious decision, but subconsciously there's some power behind that. Mm -hmm. So first I say, normalize it and let them be heard, validate it. That's also something that connected with me at a young age because of the way I accepted things in my own thinking, my immature way, I was raised a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Mm -hmm. I'm still an active member. But I can remember in church listening to things like turn the other cheek, being Christ-like. And I really took to those. I hung on to those. Very, I wound tightly around them because of the way that I fire. That I never allowed myself to validate feelings. And also growing up in a family with a dad that's a social worker and now siblings and in-law siblings that are social workers, this is a funny dynamic now. I mean, my 50, almost 50-year-old brother four months ago, we were having a family discussion where he was frustrated and he was telling us about an experience. And we were saying like, oh, I bet that person had a really hard day. Oh, I bet. And he got so mad and he's like, why is it in this family? I can't just be pissed. And you all go, gosh, ouch, that sucks. I'm sorry. No, yeah. I don't do that either. I'm always giving the other person. Right. Instead of going, well, and I, and I can remember thinking that I never validated my own feelings when I got hurt instead of thinking, gosh, that was wrong. That hurt. They were mean. They were wrong. I was like, okay, well, I shouldn't be mad because they probably had, Mm -hmm. I never gave myself the value that I needed to be validated and heard that I was easily giving somebody else. Mm -hmm which also increased that wobbliness. Right. So hearing your kid, normalizing whatever's happening. Normalizing the behavior, not just for the kid, but for the parent. As parents, we mirror to our children, just like they mirror to us, of what our belief is. So if I have a child that's overreacting and my response is, what the hell is wrong with this child? Or even if I don't verbalize, but internally, this is frustrating. This is annoying. This is, what do you think they feel from that? Yeah. They feel bad. Yeah. Which again, grows that wobbliness that they already exist in a space of knowing this is different, Yeah, which can create the space of feeling bad. Yeah. And about being different. Yes. And when it's connected to who you are, not knowing how to change it means there's a part of me I I felt very ashamed and embarrassed and I felt bad about a part of me. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So as parents, that's what we can do. Normalize, let them be heard. heard. Yes. And also don't let it grow fear in you. Don't mirror to them anything but their value Mm -hmm. because what it is. And okay. Going back to when you said why there's so many reasons why, but I don't think the concentration needs to be on why. If your child is safe, if your child is safe and not being harmed, right, right, right. That is, yeah, that's there a could big be something bad component, going on there. yeah, or component to this that you have to be aware of. If they are safe, the why isn't as important as the now what. So now what? Yes. So the now what looks like this, and and, and let me say the reason why now what is so important is 
when I said that I love my anxiety, it took me years to come to that. And that's because no matter what, it was in me. Mm-hmm. And for so long, like I said, I felt ashamed. I felt embarrassed. I felt flawed. What's wrong with me? Why is this here? When I see people in my office, that's usually what brings them in to see me. There is something in my life that I hate, that I'm embarrassed, that I'm ashamed of, that I want to get rid of, that I want to kill, that I don't like. I'm here. Take it away. I'll take medication. I'll do therapy. I'll do whatever I need to do. Well, when conflict shows up and you meet it with conflict, a fight ensues. And for me, in working with my anxiety, the minute I tried to quit fighting it and hating it and actually gave it some space for like, okay, you're part of me. You hear you exist. What? What do you want? What do you need? The minute I gave it a voice to talk to me, my anxiety, it relaxed. It didn't have to fight so hard to be heard. Yeah. It was like I said, okay, what? I'll hear you. And it said, really? That's gosh. Yeah, I could feel that just as you said that. I was like, oh, yeah, that feels good. Yeah, I don't have to fight against it. If it's in me, make it work for me. So now going to the what if. So what if is a big aspect of anxiety. Now know that my connection with anxiety had a really strong wrap around perfectionism. Mm -hmm. That's not for everyone. That was my experience. That's for a lot in the culture we live in, where we live in the state of Utah. I would say that's a big That's huge. And that's a whole big, I mean, you could do a podcast on that in and of itself. There's some Okay, we'll do your next one work. on perfectionism. Okay. Great, great work to be done in that area. But going back to the what if, that was my motivating thought behind everything. What if? What if this happened? What if this happened? What if this happened? And I was so fearful of the what if that I never actually leaned into the now what? Okay, so what? Because it was too scary. Mm-hmm. But discomfort is the catalyst for change. Trying to stay away from the discomfort meant I was just standing outside the edge of it, which meant it was going to exist much longer than if I just jumped in and said, okay, this sucks. I'm here. Now, what do we do? And it might hurt or deeper or more intensely than when I stood outside the edge, but it's the only way I'm going to get through the other side. And you're feeling and you're growing and you're changing instead of just yeah. Over here on this side, shivering. Yes. In fear, right? <laughs> right? It's moving up from a fear-based perspective of the what if to the empowered-based perspective of the now what? Game on. Let's do this. Mm-hmm. So I can give you a specific example of how that's done and how I did that in my life. But the reason why that's important is that those of us struggling with anxiety, we need a bank of evidence to rely on that says, I can. If the fear is of what if and the solvent is now what I have to know that I can do the now what, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. So what we do is we look for opportunities to build that bank of saying, I can, right? I can do it and know this, the now what, or the, I can does not have to be pretty to be a success. Like if I have a client that's afraid to get on a plane, to me, success isn't, they, they sat with their spouse and ha 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 and laughed and it was joyful and we played crosswords and right. no, it's maybe I was sobbing in my seat instead of in a heap on the floor. Right. But I did it. Yeah. And then we go back and we add that to the bank and say, my gosh, look at what you did and how hard that was. So let me give you an example of my, if so, now what? Okay. 
growing up with this history, I was afraid to have children because I thought, first of all, what if I can't handle the pregnancy? And second of all, what if I give this to my kid? When I found out I was pregnant and I got pregnant, I, I, I was not planning on getting pregnant with my first child. I was I mean, anxiety, I, I don't want to say I was devastated because I was excited. There's nothing I wanted more in, in my life than to be a mother. But the reality of it coming and knowing who I was just sent me through the roof. Mm-hmm. And I remember I went to my OB after I found out I was pregnant and he said, well, whatever you do, try not to be anxious. <sighs> and I thought, I won't name drop right here. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you're joking me, right? I don't think I slept for one day in six weeks after seeing him and just thought, I'm going to be, what if, and look at what, and so I was referred to a different doctor by my mom, went to him and his response was beautiful. He said, yeah, no, worry all you want. I don't care. Yeah. If it gets too crazy, (laughs) let me know. I can help you out with that. Worry to your heart's content. The minute he said that. You're fine. It deflated. Yeah. For those of it had that have it was normalized. It, yeah. Yes. Also know the anxiety, the fear of the actual anxiety in and of itself creates anxiety. Mm-hmm. Right. But now I I still had this fear. Okay, what if I'm a horrible mom? What if I'm the first mom in the world, I believe to this, that does not love her child when mm-hmm. the child's born? Mm-hmm. And I was afraid to voice it. In my mind, I thought, what if this child's born and I don't love her and I'm the worst mom? So I just avoided that thought and just tried to do every other thing I could to preoccupy myself to not think about it. And then one night I decided to just sit down and answer my own question. What if? Yeah, what if? What if I neglect her? What if I don't love her? What if I'm a horrible mom? What would happen? Well, she'd be neglected, mistreated, abused. Someone would probably call DCFS on me. Okay. So if they call DCFS, then what? Then they would come and see that I'm neglecting my baby and they take her from me. Okay, now what? So they take my baby, then what? Well, I have worked in agencies that dealt with DCFS. I knew kind of how things work. They'd probably try to place her in a kinship placement with someone that could take care of her because I couldn't. Okay, and if that happened, then what? Well, maybe they would ask my parents to take care of her because I know my parents would be willing to and they're great parents. Okay. And if that happened, then what? Well, if she went to stay with my parents, my parents were great parents. They were phenomenal. They loved me. I felt, I felt loved and taken care of and she'd probably have a really good life. Okay. Then what? Then I guess I don't need to worry so much about if I'm not a good mom. Yeah. Because the resolve deflated the fear. Yeah. Now, the fact that that didn't come to fruition or even had to to come to fruition, the fact that I was willing to lean into the thought mm-hmm. and actually exist there, because I say it now calmly, but verbalizing the state coming in and taking my child, mm-hmm. I mean, good grief. That was like, yeah. are you kidding me? But I existed in my resolve, my now what long enough that deflated the fear. Is that something you would recommend people do is go in and go through all of the steps of what if, and would you do that with your kid? If your kid was having anxiety. So, okay. You don't want to go to school. Why not? Because this would happen. Well, let's talk about that happening. Okay. So that happens. Then what? And you're, yes. And in the end, you find a way to become a victor over your fear. 
Yeah. Where you get to have power. When you experience anxiety, it has the louder voice. It feels to have more power than you can choose right. to have. So it's finding a way to empower yourself as big as it is. Yes. And the more easier that becomes, the easier it is to grow your voice louder than it's. Right. It reminds me of just a simple thing when I was a kid, and I think dad did this with you, when you would worry about having a bad dream or you had a bad dream and you couldn't sleep the next night because you were afraid it was going to happen. And he gave me a gun, a little water gun to put under my pillow. And he'd walk me through this whole step of the dream. And when this part happens, okay, this is what you're going to do. I remember pulling out my gun and shooting the people. And, and in the end of the dream, I was the victor. And it was very, I mean, I still remember it. And I don't remember having the dream or ever being the victor, but I remember knowing that I could if I needed to. And that was really awesome to yeah. have that feeling that you can do something. Yeah. You know? And then banking that, anchoring that in a way that you can store it. Even if something comes up bigger mm-hmm. than what you have, you do have evidence to go back and say, wait a minute, I have proof that I can do right. fear. I can do hard. It may not be pretty. It may not be perfect. Yeah. And in my case, hopefully it's not perfect because that was something I was mm-hmm. trying to shift, but it still means I can. Yeah. So if you see yourself or your child lean into the discomfort and stay engaged in it, celebrate the heck out of it mm-hmm. any way that you can. Um, let them know in yourself or your child how strong and powerful that is. I can think of a time when I was on a corporate trip with my husband for a job that he was at. And we were with a lot of people that he was caring for. And I had another thing about anxiety. It has, it doesn't always have a rhyme or reason. It mm-hmm. shows up at different times. Not You can't always understand a trigger of, of why. Right. That's I, why I'm saying I don't think the why necessarily matters because you can never pinpoint. Yes. Some people are asleep and wake up. Yes. I still have dead those. sleep. Yeah. Wake up in the dead sleep. My heart racing, pounding, can't catch my breath. I was on a plane with my husband and, and all of everyone on the plane was with him for work. Mm-hmm. And here comes anxiety. And I thought, you've got to be kidding me now. Now, what am I going to do? I thought I can't, I, I don't want to fall on a heap in a heap on the floor and respond how my body wants to respond. And so I did mindfulness. I redirected pathway. I did everything in my power. I knew it was a four hour flight for four straight hours. I did it. I made it through. It, it maybe wasn't pretty. I wasn't really talking to anyone. People were trying to talk to me. And, you know, I'd say I'm not feeling well. I'm just trying to keep my thoughts focused in a place that I knew was safe for me. And when I got home, I slept for 17 hours. That's how hard that battle was for me. But in the end, I was like, are you kidding me? I did that for four hours. So when I have a night, I would think, gosh, I'm only 30 minutes in. I've done for four hours before. Mm -hmm. It's finding a way to empower yourself where fear isn't bigger than you. Let me say another thing that I get asked often in my office and just in people in passing that know that this is, this is part of me that I've worked with is medication. The great thing about anxiety, it is very responsive to so many different types of therapies, to medications, things like that. Medication 
is very, very helpful for anxiety. But let me tell you about my connection with that. So I've been on medication twice in my life. I took medication and and I'm not saying that because I look down on medication. Mm -hmm. People know what works best Mm -hmm. for them, but I want to tell you my experience and how I see it working for my benefit with anxiety. I experienced extreme anxiety right after I married my husband. I had the, what if fear, what if I'm a crappy wife and he leaves me, Mm -hmm. right? That kind of existed the first year of our marriage. I would get up and go running most nights at like three in the morning And kudos to him. I married the perfect guy because when I would get up and say, so I'm going for a run, he'd be like, okay, have fun. (laughs) He didn't look at me like you crazy lady. He normalized it. He normalized it. Right. He normalized it, which is what I needed. But I was not getting sleep. It grew big enough that my ability to sleep was crippled. When you don't get sleep, I also couldn't eat. When you can't eat and you can't sleep, it is really, really hard to have logical to function functioning. Right. right? And so medication is a great way when you're in a hole so deep that you can't do the work that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. It's a great way to pull yourself up to a level playing field so that you can start doing the work that you need to do. Mm -hmm. Right. And then if you decide it's not something you want to continue with, you taper off in a way that you still feel like you can experience normalcy for you with enough discomfort that you can do work. With my daughter, because this started at a young age, and I wasn't interested because of the way I do things in my home at that time to have her on a medication or anything. If I recognized there were nights that she had been up too long, then I would give her a Benadryl. Right. Right. It's learning to make it effective in your life. That is how I learned to love my anxiety. Okay. Moving to that direction. All right. So now talking about a way of wanting to love this part of me, my anxious self and making it work for me. So I decided I was fed up. I think I was in my late twenties, early thirties. And I thought, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of this being a part of me. I'm going to give it a voice. Teach me, help me know what it is you want me to learn about myself. And I just decided I was going to study the heck out of it in any way that I could, whether it be books. I ended up going back to school, trying new things and and really having direct insight in how they respond to me, the way I eat, Mm -hmm. the way I sleep the way I talk, the way I interact with people, the way I connect uh, those four frameworks going back biologically. I know I cannot stay up late. Right. I know that. Not the funnest person at a college party, obviously, when I was in college. But (laughs) if I stayed up, I don't sleep. Eating, right? There are certain foods that I avoid. I don't ever drink caffeine. That's not, that's based strictly on the way that I fire. I'm hot enough as it is. I don't need anything to amp me up. There's different things that I started to recognize in all of those frameworks. Religious. Okay. Can we talk about this? Because you started watching R-rated movies. Yes. Can I say that? that (laughs) No, you can say that I started watching watching R-rated movies. So going back to my connection with anxiety is tightly wound around perfection. And perfectionism, my definition is... Your value is based upon your ability to perform. Okay. I 100% believed that. My value in every area of my life is based upon my ability to perform. That's why I feared my husband leaving me because I couldn't perform good enough as a wife. That's why I feared not loving my child because I wasn't going to be a good enough mom. That's why I feared God. What if I can't live up to his expectation? And he won't love you. 
Is well, that what you're feeling? Kind no? of. No, in a way, because I knew God loved me, but I don't think I truly understood love, unconditional love, yeah. because I had tied it so tightly to my ability to perform. Now, I can talk to you about how I was conditioned that way. I believe there was conditioning that happened in my life that connected that to me, not knowingly. And I worry about talking about this because a lot of parents, when I see them who have kids with anxiety say, what can I do to fix it? Right. To me, that's perpetuating the fear. If there are behaviors that can be shifted, great. But the best way is to stand next to your kid and say, I'm going to watch you do this and you're going to kill it. Right. Right. Yeah. It's well, not- dad talks about that as well. You don't want to rescue them. You want to stand by them. Yes. And be there to support them. Yes. So if you have a child with anxiety, it does not mean you're failing as a parent. It's less about your journey, in my opinion, and more about theirs. Okay. But going back to my conditioning and the way that I came to this world, I came to this world as a pleaser. That's who I am. I came into a family. I have a dad that's a social worker. When I was young, the work that my dad did as a social worker was very hard. And I can remember that even though I was too young to understand. He worked at the child protection team at Primary Children's. And I remember the time when he had, I think it was 11 deaths in 13 months. Mm -hmm. As a little girl, I remember my dad. God, that will make me emotional in that phase of his life. And it was rough, rough. Um, He was rough. And to any social worker out there, they teach you about self-care in school. So huge. As a little girl, I saw poor self-care. I don't think it was a lack of trying on my dad's part. It was just a lot of heavy stuff. But I also remember him coming home and saying things to me like, you make my day. Coming home to see you makes me so happy. It makes me feel like this weight is lifted. And what kid wouldn't want to feel that and think that, oh, I have this connection with my dad. My tightly wound brain connected to, I have to help my dad. I have to be the best girl because I see his heartache. And he tells me, I'm good. I'm light. I help. So my pleasing self was like, well, I better be the best I can so my dad can be the happiest. Yeah. Now, I don't think... He taught me that it wasn't a fault in his parenting. It was the way that I'm wired and the way that I accepted it. Right. That just like turned a light bulb on in my head. Like I would have never put that together. So that's really interesting and good to be aware of that. Yes. Well, and I wasn't aware that that connection Mm -hmm. until I was older, Mm -hmm. but I do feel I had a huge, I felt a weight or a need to care for my dad Mm -hmm. from a young age. Mm -hmm. And even still as an adult, when he comes to my house, I want to like feed him and get him drinks. Right. And it's kind of weird. I don't know. Like, <laughs> always looking at me like, what the crap is going on here? Anyways, so the reason I bring that up is I think that that had a connection to the way I saw God. Okay. Completely. Like, right? That's research proof. Talk yes. about that. So my connection with God was in order for him to be okay with me, I had to just try my hardest work my best. And because of that, I feared him. Fear in that you didn't want to let him down or fear that bad things will happen to you if you don't do all of it. it. Okay. Yeah. I was God fearing in every sense of like the biblical term of God fearing. I pictured God, my husband actually identified this for me and it was so true. He said, I swear you picture God up in heaven with his finger over a red button, just waiting for you to not measure up so he can just... Yeah. And I'm like, exactly. <laughs> that is, a, if you could paint a perfect picture of the way I see God, that is exactly how I see it. Now, what's funny about that, which is 
go on. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, what's funny about that? That is completely opposite of what I've been taught. Yeah. Right. So that's why I'm saying the why doesn't necessarily always matter at the time because you may not be able to identify. Mm -hmm. But the now what is what helped me have insight to the why. Mm -hmm. If I truly believed in a God that loved unconditionally and believed in repentance, if right. I truly believe that, why would I fear having to be perfect? But I did. You did. And actually, when you're not perfect is when you get close and you get to do work and you get to, yes. you know, rely on the Savior to yes. help you, which 100%. is a really great thing. And going in, I mean, and if we talk about perfectionism in the future, that is a huge Oh my gosh, there's so much to talk about there and the connection with that. So my fear of perfection meant if I could perform everything well, then there's not going to be any chaos. There's not going to be contention. There's not going to be heartache. There's not going to be fear. If I can just manage my life, which was a lie, right? Because I was existing in fear mm -hmm. all the time. But it wasn't until I allowed myself to start wrestling with things, to start not expecting perfection, to allow the growth of imperfection to come is when fear started to change for me. When I exist and lean into my discomfort, I grow greater than any other way in my life. And because of that, I don't fear fear like I used to. I have had to acknowledge my anxious self as its own person. And I have conversations with her a lot. And I try to help her help me better. I try to teach her as much as she tries to teach me. And because of that, for those that have anxiety, no. I mean, when I'm having anxious moments and I can channel into cleaning my house, woo! Oh, yeah. Like, Good grief. It's never as sparkly clean or, or planning an activity or whatever might right. be. I know. Can, can you write me. me down in your phone for an alarm <laughs> next time you have one? Yes. Just come over here and start cleaning. <laughs> oh, funny. Yeah, that all makes really good sense and ties in together. So you lean, you lean into a fear, like a fear for you would have been to watch an R-rated movie because that is not doing what What's you're supposed right. to be doing. Yes. But you're going to do it. Okay. So go, go jump. Okay. So I, it's funny saying that part of me had to realize I had to see that jumping into it meant I deflated what I tied it to watching an R rated movie. Like you say, it did not mean that all my family was killed in a car accident. Right Now, I know that sounds extreme to people that don't experience it. But when I was young, I really believed that. Right. right? If I'm not willing to do my best and be perfect. Eh, red button right? gets oh, Here comes your family getting in a car. <laughs> something like that. So actually existing in some of that. And that is why the great thing about that is as parents, as individuals, there are things that we fear that are scary. There are journeys that we or loved ones can be on that you think this is rough. I don't like this, but my rough journeys help me realize that I don't have to actually fear them as much as I thought. Yeah. Yeah. To me, watching an R-rated movie was like, never, why would I do that? What is God going to do? But you know what? I watched one. God didn't stop loving me. Yeah. Which was the fear. I leaned into it. And sometimes we have to exist in those. 
And as parents, that might be scary. But if it means that your child, for me, I actually developed a real relationship with God, one that I choose him because I love him, not because I fear if I don't. I feel his love, not based on my ability to perform anymore. I feel it because I'm me. Totally. So what's your favorite um, R-rated movie? (laughs) (laughs) Million Dollar Baby. (laughs) Right? So obviously I've worked on the fear connected with that. Oh, that's well, is there anything else you want to touch on? Yeah. Last and just finishing up. I was not diagnosed with anxiety as a kid. My dad was a therapist. I will tell you this kind of funny. I remember thinking, I don't know what all these people are going to him for. He can't even fix my anxiety because I thought how ironic I have a dad who's a therapist and I have anxiety. Are you kidding me? But everything that I experienced was exactly what I needed for my anxiety. I was not diagnosed with anxiety. I don't know that I ever have been actually by have a you doctor. you gone in and taken the tests and whatever? I, when I went to get on medication and those two times that I did and, and talked to the doctor, he said, yeah, it sounds like you could have some anxiety. He did not diagnose me with anxiety. I appreciate that I wasn't, but I will say this, knowing that I have anxiety, once I realized for myself, that's what it was, there was a release that I'm just not crazy. There's something in me that other people have. It's mm-hmm. not just me. So knowing and, and knowing that I have it, there was some peace that came with it. But I don't think that it mattered. I guess what I'm trying to say is a lot of people want to know, are they diagnosed with this? I don't know that that matters unless it undoes a connection that they think they're flawed. Mm-hmm. And I remember how I kind of came to it. My dad never said as a therapist, well, you have anxiety. Mm-hmm. And these are the symptoms and this is what you're, no, we just kind of worked with it. My parents just kind of, oh, this is what she does. This is what we're going to do. And we just kind of did it. And I appreciate that. There was some peace that came to me from recognizing I do have anxiety Mm because it meant I'm not just crazy, which is what I thought. And not that there's any, we're all kind of crazy, but I connected with somebody else. I remember I was at a, a neighborhood activity in the first home that me and Andy lived in. I was sitting next to a lady who was talking to me, she said she had anxiety. And she started talking about all of these things that she had experienced. And I thought, oh my gosh, me too. And that's what it is. And it was like this liberating, like, oh, it's not just me not able to function appropriately. I do have something. Yeah. So I I can see both sides of that coin. I don't know that a diagnosis is necessarily important, especially if you fear the diagnosis, right? If it's going to be like, oh, no, something's wrong. But it is an acknowledgement that it's kind of the now what? Okay. Mm -hmm. If so, let's work on it. Now, what do we do? Yeah. Okay. So let's recap. We recap some things that we can do as a parent. Mm -hmm. Normalize. Normalize. And the other one I validate can't remember. And here. Validate and hear. You can you tell that I don't remember that because <laughs> I don't want to. <laughs> validate and hear. And let me say this: validate and hear does not mean give it power. Yeah. It doesn't mean we have to change our family plans yes. because she's scared. Yes. That's actually opposite. You have to create that bank of evidence that she can in yeah. for, in c- connection with your daughter. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. This is so hard for you. I'm so proud of you for doing this. And you're going and you're going, even though you're scared afterwards, how were you able to do it? What were you able to do? And really finding a way to celebrate them existing in the scary and uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. 
The if so, now what? Yeah. So then we have the if so, now what? And Mm -hmm. so with now what, lean in. Just continue the story until you find your resolve. Start with the what if and then go to the now what. And that's going to bring it up another what if. And you go to another now what. And it might take you 57 now what's. It might take you four. Right. But stay engaged. All that little exercise does is it helps you know how to lean in mm-hmm. instead of standing outside on the edge for fear of the pain, but it just means it's existing longer. Yeah. Jump in. Now what? And then honor your journey. A successful journey isn't one that's pretty. It's one right. that you were willing to jump you into. jumped in. You want to celebrate it, yes. even if it's ugly, and bank it away. Yep. And then store it so that when it comes up again, you start to build this collection of saying of what you know you evidence. can do. Yes. And that's why this is an evidence-based profession. So yes. isn't it? And that is why it is important for parents not to let or individuals not to let their fear run the show. You have to support yourself or whoever that's experienced this in engaging in the fear and then celebrating even if it's just a toe that they, they did. Yeah. Okay, well those are some very good little tools for me to pack away and I'm sure many other people. Okay. And good. Yeah. Thank you for coming in and talking. Lives. And I do want to say that that Rachel does work at the Bountiful Health Center with my dad Craig. She has her own clients and uh, call if you want an appointment. Thanks for joining us today and we'll see you next time on the full cup. Hi everyone. Thanks for listening to our episode on anxiety today. If you have not left us a review on iTunes or where you listen to your podcast, please do. We really appreciate it and it helps us find more listeners and also share it. If you are liking what you're hearing, please share it with your friends or family members. Thanks for listening.